Hello, and welcome to Rock, Paper, Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. And my name is Stephen A. McKay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors that our guests today have never heard of. And today we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV and games. And we also talk about rock music from time to time. Recently, we talk about rock music quite a bit. And today is one of those days, because today we're going to talk about Ian Anderson. This year, Ian Anderson celebrates his 55th year as a recording and performing musician with Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull has released more than 30 studio and live albums, selling more than 60 million copies since the inaugural album recording. This was in 1968. After undertaking more than 4,000 concerts in 40-something countries throughout five decades, Tull still performs in many concerts each year. Widely recognised as the man who introduced the flute to rock music, Ian Anderson remains the crowned exponent of the popular and rock genres of flute playing. I took that from his own bio off his webpage. Right, I think right. you, can, you can tell, can't you? There. In 2006 and 2010, he was awarded doctorates in literature from Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh and the Abate University of Dundee. He received the Ivor Award for International Achievement in Music and in the New Year's Honours List of 2008, an MBE for Services to Music. As massive fans of Jethro Tull and Ian's work, we are both overjoyed to have Ian Anderson on the podcast. Welcome to Rock Paper Swords, Ian. Okay, the new album. We both really enjoyed it. So Rock Flute is inspired by Norse mythology and religion. And you've explored religion before in songs like My God, uh, The Zealot Gene as well, and mythology and songs from the wood. But this is a bit different. So can you tell us a bit about your inspiration? Well, you say it was inspired by Norse mythology. It's actually inspired by the fear of death because I'm an old person and... I don't have that long to go, so my primary motivation for continuing to, you know, try to be productive physically, mentally, and and in terms of new projects, and hopefully that'll last for a few years, but it is driven primarily by, you know, the end of life need to, um, you know, do one more or two more or three more <laughs> things before it's too late. And when I set out to start work on the album, which was at nine o'clock in the morning of January the 1st of 2022, um, I had a just an empty head. The only thing I th thought was I'm going to make an album of rock music and it will strongly feature the flute. And so, as I had mentioned to our record company a few weeks before, um, it just had a working title of Rock Flute. And during the course of that first day, I decided that I would write 
on the subject of polytheistic beliefs. And I had a look at Greek mythology and Roman mythology and decided on the more Germanic and Nordic mythology, since that was the, the final sweep northwestward that began really in Asia with a number of belief systems which share quite a few common traits and even some common gods or gods that have similar personalities and functions. And so uh, I ended up with Norse mythology, which was my last choice in the sense that it was already connected, often in an unfortunate way, to everything from heavy metal bands um, with a fascination for the dark side of the macho um, Vikings and gods through to the um, the even more worrying fascination that it held for Heinrich Himmler, who I think gained perhaps in his own way some inspiration from Wagner and the, the previous ideas that there was this Aryan superiority and the blonde, blue-eyed Nordic heroes, which the Nazis um, were, were so in love with. Um, so it was a tricky one, and I thought, well, rather than be put off by that, I should think of it more of a challenge and see if I can do it in a sensitive way that is more historically correct and and a little bit more analytical in terms of looking at the gods themselves and their roles and personalities as depicted in mythology. Strikingly, I suppose, the poetic Edda of uh, Icelandic history around the 11th century. And um, so I set out to write an album, uh, which on day two was beginning to rapidly take shape in terms of having a number of principal characters, a few musical motifs on the flute that I, that I could develop into, into uh, complete musical ideas. So... In that period of a couple of weeks, you know, I wrote the album lyrically and musically, and um, and then after uh, a little while, set about doing the demos to send to the band, and that's how it all took place. But no, it was as I say, as I say, it wasn't. It was it really not not my particular interest in Norse mythology, but because right. I didn't know too much about um, Norse mythology, it was something I could embed myself in in terms of reading and and research, and so took two weeks of my time to really investigate and try to find the the detail to put into the lyrics. No, it's great. I mean, both both of us have listened to the album lots of times and re reviewed it, and it's, it's really great. And the lyrics um, of, of the songs on, on rock flutes frequently make allusions to present day and, and modern events as well, but hold within the context of this larger Norse myths and gods sort of um, concept. Um, the first bit, you know, describing the the um, identities and settings of personalities of the different gods. And then later on, you go on to talk about more personalized um, moments from your own life or your own interpretation of, of sort of a modern um, context. One of my favorite tracks on the album is Hammer on Hammer. And in it, of course, you reference Vladimir Putin and a meeting you had with him in 1992. Um, did you get an inkling of what he was like when you met him and what, what went down? No, um, just to recap on that, songs 2 through 11 on the album all follow the same principle of having three stanzas on the topics of the historical and personality side of those 
those um, Norse gods and the final two stanzas are relating those personalities, characters and roles into my own experience um, of life as I know it. So I, I thought it was interesting that because I think invariably throughout human history, we have cast gods in the image of men. And of course, Christians would say, no, 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 um, you know, man was created in the image of God, but that's all too convenient as an excuse. You know, we have always felt that gods were either superior humans or occasionally animals of uh, an imposing nature. So um, that is what really led me is to, to look at the personalities, that the, the, the need to create gods who had definite roles and personalities. And so the, the, the way in which I wrote the songs very deliberately um, was to try to follow that practice all the way through of 60% uh, of, the, of the lyrics being set in a more uh, analytical and historical context and the 40% and the that was about the world we or I live in. And so Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin featured only because it turned out that uh, he had been um, evident at a meet and greet after a concert in St. Petersburg in 1992 when the the principal person in the party was, was Anatoly Sobchak, the mayor of St. Petersburg, and Putin was working for him at the time as a, as a, a chief advisor and um, was photographed on the the periphery of this little meet and greet session um but i don't i don't recall meeting putin personally or talking to him he simply was just he was there looking looking rather beady-eyed and threatening in my direction i think he liked the fact that his boss was kowtowing and and um fraternizing with um degenerate westerners uh, because Putin at that point was a, a major in the KGB, at least a couple of days a week as a part-time um, KGB man. Once a KGB man, always a KGB man, and Putin to this day still is in rapture to the the machinery of spying and intimidation, threat and corruption that I believe he was even going back to 1992. Right. The your lyrics are, in my opinion, the best in rock, and you've even got your own book, Silent Singing, which I've got down here. So how easily did the words flow in the writing of the new album compared to the old ones? Has it become easier or harder over the years? I think it's definitely a whole lot easier in the sense that lyric writing was embarrassingly difficult for me to begin with, as I know it is for a lot of people who perhaps develop some musical skills and talents and are intimidated and and perhaps put off writing lyrics because they're either self-conscious or they don't really have anything to say. And probably because their models are clearly the uh, the lyrics of classic lyrics of pop and rock music, which are invariably heart on sleeve, emotional outpourings about being in love or not being in love. I mean, that makes up 90% of everything that's ever been written. It does come down to um human relationship songs usually between a man and a woman um perhaps increasingly less so but um that's fine never really interested me a great deal but 
that was one of the reasons, I suppose, I didn't find it easy to write songs because I didn't want to write love songs. I wanted to write music that was about other things that perhaps were a little tricky to write about because there were subjects that, that weren't really on the agenda for most people. But gradually, I think I found that way and I began increasingly writing about stuff rather than writing about me and my feelings. Um, that was a whole lot easier. And these days, whilst I let my own feelings or emotions come into a few songs, and I quite often let the feelings and emotions of other characters come into songs when I'm peppering a song with other personalities, um, it's it's a whole lot easier now, perhaps because I'm less self-conscious about it and more secure in my knowledge that... Um, I have neither been arrested nor condemned or cancelled as yet. So I think I can carry on my in my merry way writing whatever I want to write about so long as I do it, you know, with a bit of care and sensitivity and don't don't cross certain lines. But, you know, I guess there are probably two or three things I've written in my life that would not be uh, really acceptable in in today's world most notably the song Fat Man from the Stand Up album. Right. Although lyric although although lyrically I'm not laughing or joking or making fun of people of uh, obesity. <laughs> Indeed, I'm actually being sympathetic and trying to say, you know, in a certain silly imaginary scenario, the um the uh the fat guy is superior. And so it's perhaps an object lesson in saying we shouldn't laugh at people like that but nonetheless on the face of it people could be quite offended um and the song budapest which mercilessly um talks in in quite uh, erotic terms about a a young girl who if i remember rightly i think she was 15 or 16 as a trainee athlete for the um for the um the hungarian olympic team uh, as a, a middle distance runner, but the way in which I wrote it was very deliberately provocative and, and I suppose erotic. But as the song develops, it's a it, it clearly I hope it clearly becomes a song about look but don't touch. You know, be respectful, be admiring of someone's physical grace and and uh, an appearance, but not. You know, it's 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 not quite the way it appears, and but I can understand some people might have found it or might find it today a song of um, lyrical material that would would be um, you know not really acceptable um, so, so unless unless you unless you look behind the song and see what it is I'm trying to say. Look, but don't touch. Yeah. Well. I've got a question then about just following on from that then. So you say it's easier to write now. You feel more self, less self-conscious and more self-assured um, in, in your writing abilities, I guess. And obviously you've got validation from mm -hmm. that over the years. Um, but do you find now with the way that the world has changed, obviously over the last four or five years especially, do you find yourself self-censoring um, at all? When well, you're writing so, lyrics? No, not so far, because I don't really have to think too carefully about topics. I mean, on many... I suppose there are many things on the woke agenda, if we call it that, that are inherently things that I would agree with. It's just the practice and the the um, virtue signalling has, has been um, 
uh, a very apt and appropriate description that, that annoys me. And the way in which people jump on a bandwagon, sometimes very naively, particularly children who question yeah. their own sexuality, which I guess most of us have done at some point, probably quite early on in our lives. But the idea of being encouraged to uh, take on just for the sake of being different or to annoy people, whether parents or teachers or whatever, I, I, I really do have a, an inevitable feeling that whilst there are cases quite clearly where somebody feels legitimately they are born in the wrong body and want to want to um, want to become physically and undertake the societal role of people of the opposite sex i mean that's quite legitimate i'm sure in some cases but you know if it was my children or my grandchildren i would say listen why don't you just you know live with what you've got until you're in your mid-20s and then see how you feel about it then because taking dramatic steps either as a pre-teen which unfortunately some parents are encouraging or as in later life perhaps um you know a, a, a major surgical intervention in teenage years or beyond that, that's a big big step and I, I do feel that caution thinking about it letting your physical uh, body develop and your mental um, facilities refine in terms of of sex and gender then um, I do think caution and wait and see is a better approach than um than taking an action which I'm afraid in many cases may just be based on on peer group pressure and imitation rather than a genuine a genuine feeling. So I, I am I am nervous about it and nervous about it. Uh, my grandson, who's uh, eleven, coming up twelve, told me that that at school they were having lessons about this and they'd been told mm -hmm. the word. I can't remember the exact term, but you know, twenty-seven different genders or so, whatever. I mean, and I, I looked and I said, you know, this is um, something you've got to be really cautious about, uh, either believing what you're being told or believing yeah. in the importance of it, because it's something that is a sideshow. For some children, it's a big, big factor in their lives, but for most people, it's a sideshow, and I really don't feel that it should be. Um, exaggerated at school in as part of a woke agenda to say oh we must you know must recognize this and recognize that well of course we do but we do it in you know it's an internal thing it's not something you have to go and shout about and in rare cases there's a very very good reason for it which i'm entirely supportive of but i do feel in the multitude of cases or the majority of cases there is a degree of imitation and peer group pressure involved so that is a danger and uh, one that I think people should be should be on guard against, parents, teachers, and children alike. I find it quite it's a strange coincidence that you say to David Palmer. I'm sure it's bursting out. Did you give it a good shake, David, when he's been for a pee? Mm. And of course, he ended up as D Palmer. So that must be quite strange for everyone involved. Well, it was strange in the sense that David Palmer was a man's man. David Palmer mm -hmm. was a pipe-smoking, beardy, deep voice, and yeah. very much the um, the academic macho man. I mean, he he gave no signs early on of of um, anything that would suggest 
uh, a move towards what occurred later, long after he left the band. But, you know, having known David at that time, he was um, somewhere along the line. We did notice, I think, when we met up with him somewhere that he was wearing rather strange clothes that were, I suppose, a bit unisex and did appear to be have something under his rather loose-fitting upper garment that resembled the straps of a bra. And, um, you know, I mean, I kind of shrugged it off and um, it transpired later that uh, David was, at that point, uh, cross-dressing. I mean, he's a married man with four children, you know, but um, mm -hmm. he was his... Uh, his wife, who he looked after until she passed away with a, a, an incurable and persistent, terrible disease, um, during during that time, you know, he was um, he was increasingly dissatisfied with his uh, with his physical manliness and decided that um, he was an intersex baby who um, wanted to make a life decision that was contrary to the one on his birth certificate. Uh, I mean, you know, Dee Palmer, as he now is, as she is now is, would, would, would have said all this many times. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything yeah. out of court yeah. here. It's a, it's, um, you know, common, uh, common knowledge. It's just, it's just to repeat from the point of view of understanding, but this is a decision he took, she took, well, he took the decision um, when he was a he, he took that decision at a point when I think from memory, he was already in his sixties. And um, first I really got to know about it was when the, I think it was the news of the, the world, but could have been the Daily Mail. I think it was the news of the world who were camped outside the gates of my house. Um, and, um, and I was away on tour, so goodness knows what they were doing. <laughs> They're waiting, but they've been sleeping in a car at the, at the crossroads, trying to intercept me on my way home or from home. And they didn't see me when I arrived home, but on the way when I got home, my wife told me that there were some people ominously parked on a corner where it's actually a bit of a traffic hazard. And, and I had to go to London that day and my driver was taking me down. I said, look, let's just stop and see what this car is about. And I put, we pulled up alongside and I um, opened the window and, and said, uh, excuse me, what, what, what are you looking for here? Why, why are you parked here? I believe you've been here for some days. And they looked a bit startled, two <laughs> people. And they said, oh, well, we wanted to talk to you. And I said, and about what? And they said, "Well, we have uh, we have information that you have been uh, cross dressing for years, <laughs> and that you're embarking upon a sex change operation," <laughs> which left me, um, you know, a bit puzzled. And I said, "Well, I don't know where did you get this information from? Or oh, we're not at liberty to divulge our sources." I said, "Well, <laughs> you know, with respect, I mean that really is a load of bollocks. You've got it from somewhere, and someone has given you some wrong information. And um, are you denying it?" And I said, "Denying it? You mean denying it? Sounds like I am, <laughs> I am uh, wanting to refute something of which I'm ashamed, or something that is morally wrong, or whatever." So I said, "If that's your angle, is to some." 
to have some lurid uh, refusal, then I'm afraid I'm not going to give you what you want. So I said, I, in that case, I'm not going to deny it and I'm not going to confirm it. You'll just have to go back to your sources and explore the uh, the information a little more carefully next time and make up your own mind. And and, <laughs> and, and as I finally said, well, just, just let me ask you one question. Do you think... Um, do you think I would, um, you know, would I benefit from such a, an action? I said, uh, hard to imagine. I said, if I decided, <laughs> if I decided at my age, the way I am now, to to become a woman, I, I said I'd be pretty close on being the ugliest fucking woman you've ever met. <laughs> Closed my window and we drove away. <laughs> and um, and of course they we never saw them again. But on my way, I think it was actually on the station platform. When I was waiting for my train later that morning, uh, my phone rang and uh, and a voice said, hello, is that Ian? And I said, uh, yes, who's this? It's Dee. I said, who? Dee, Dee Palmer. I said, Dave, what, what's up? Yeah, why are you speaking? He said, um, there's something uh, I need to talk to you about. I said, what is it? He said, well, he said, for some time, he said, there's, there's something I've been wanting to get off my increasing, increasingly ample chest. <laughs> <laughs> at which point we were both laughing because I kind of knew what was coming next. And I said, well, really, what a coincidence you're calling me to tell me this this morning because I just had a bit of a run-in with the news of the world um, or the oh, Daily Mail or the Daily Express or whatever it was. But um, anyway, that was um, that was when um, the Deep Armour decided to, it was time that I should know about these things. And I, I guess it, I guess at that point, it was becoming more common knowledge because a few people that 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 we that had worked together at that point um, were also aware, and and some some didn't take it very well. Some some were, you know, perfectly relaxed about it. But um, these things happen, and uh, I suppose after sixty years, you know, if you're going to make that decision, you you really will have thought about it long and hard. Yeah. Decided yeah. carefully that this is what you want to do, and now that you are relatively free to do it without um, um, mockery or intervention, since the views of the time were obviously quite different to how they'd been yeah. twenty or thirty or forty years ago, then you know it was uh, something that was more understandable. And it's to this day, D. Palmer is still D. Palmer. Um, I think that the surgery was to a degree that would not be um, um, restorable or redressable Ooh. or reversible. Right. Well, it sounds like, I mean, we, we, you talked a bit about different facets of, of, of all of that sort of gender, um, I, I don't even know what an overarching term would be for all of that, but, um, but it sounds like almost as there could be a concept album in all of that. Could be your well, next, next that, project. That's, that's that's an example of where I think, lyrically speaking, I would be defeated by the enormity of trying to write on that sort of a topic in a way that was clear and unquestionable in terms of its intent, and would not be misunderstood or leapt upon by people who wanted to use it as a, you know, as an excuse for 
a diatribe. So no, mm. I, I think I, I I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. And I, as I say, ultimately, I think these are relatively private things. If you're in the public eye to any degree, then of course it will become public, and some people will perhaps in the the lurid tabloid way jump upon it because it seems something um you know to fill the pages but um you know for most people i think it's a private matter and one that should be respected as being kept private to the the people concerned and their immediate family and friends i, I really think above all this is a a private matter and one that as I say, should be the subject of deliberation. But, you know, I certainly as a child, well, not as a child, as a teenager, as a young teenager, I suppose inevitably I questioned my own sexuality and um, particularly because the things I was interested in were more associated with girly pursuits. <laughs> I mean, I didn't quite do the, the stereotypical thing of embroidery or knitting, but, you know, I, I remember... I remember actually at primary school we did some some uh, needlework classes for boys and girls, and I remember being quite good at it and quite enjoying it. But um, art, painting, and drawing became my interest really as a as I entered my teens, and and music increasingly so throughout my teens, and so my the more artistic side of my nature was definitely to the fore and mm. my interest in hanging out with boys drinking playing sports or following football or anything of that sort was flat zero and so i definitely wasn't connected to the the stereotypic stereotypical young male pursuits or 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 ways of social interaction. I, I never, never liked hanging out with a bunch of guys, you know. <laughs> but um, and still, that's the case today. But I mean, I have to work with them, you know, and um, as long as they <laughs> keep the distance, I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. But that applies to, that that applies to women as well. I just don't like being. <laughs> I, I don't like being touched, and I don't like, um, you know, I just hate the people in my face, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm the worst possible. A person to be doing what I do for a living because I really, really don't like social interaction. I hate meet and greets. I hate, you know, requests for selfies and autographs and all that stuff. I mean, I just really don't enjoy the attention. It, it's not doing it. I mean, I will sign an autograph for somebody, an autograph, one autograph. I will do that, but I don't. Um, I don't enjoy it. I don't think I have to enjoy it. And it's it's not that I. It's not the act that I dislike it's the attention mm -hmm. you know when you suffer absolute not just attention but scrutiny you know for a couple of hours on stage and you step off and you clean yourself up and you tidy up and you put your instruments away and you pack up and ready to go you know i feel at that point i am back in civilian life and that i really don't like the attention so I, I really don't like finding people following me down the street or waiting at the hotel for autographs or doing whatever. It's just I don't I don't, I don't like un, unwarranted attention. And I hate sitting in a restaurant and somebody happens to think they know what I do or who I am or whatever and, and, and surreptitiously try and take photographs of me eating. I really, really yeah. don't like that. And, yeah. you know, I just have to say, check, please pay the bill and walk out, you know, with a, an uneaten mm -hmm. meal in front of me because I really just can't cope with 
with um, being watched. Yeah, an um, intrusion. So that, that that's just the way I've always been. I, I mean, I, there's nothing changed. I've just always been like that. And I suppose, you know, I just like, I'm a loner. You know, that's, uh, I'm the, uh, in some ways, the stereotypical artist in his, <clears throat> in his garret atelier where where he's um you know it's a low it's a lonely pursuit i know yeah. some great classical artists had their students and their studios where acolytes and followers would would actually carry out some of the painting but um for the most part painters work alone they are they are they are hermits in solitude fascinated only by trying to bring a subject to some kind of reality. And, and I think in many cases, the great classic composers were the same kind of animal. Um, yeah. Sometimes to the detriment of their mental state, um, because it can be a lonely life and you can get a little bit, um, get a bit of a loose screw, but loose screws are ironically what help to fasten together the greatest artistic Brunel-like bridges that, that 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 cross from fantasy into reality for so many people, um, and passes ultimately as mere entertainment. But it's a it's a great uh, it's a great thing to be doing. But you know, I think many of us are really loners. You know, we don't we don't mm-hmm. we don't necessarily get on with with other people. I think we're both the same. But ha- having said all of that, you know, I have a family, and I I uh, whenever possible, I'm at home with my wife. Mm-hmm. my cats and um three and a half grandchildren and um if they if they want to come and be sociable that's all right but please put it in writing as a request <laughs> and I'll in. so taking it taking it back to the to the rock flute album which of course is what you're at the moment promoting um but um so you started off with this concept of it being rock and flute and then it became flute or however you pronounce it but um we noticed that there's not much acoustic guitar on the album so was that a conscious decision because you wanted it be, to be more rock oriented yeah yeah absolutely consciously i thought i don't want to give the impression to the band that this is um in any way a little more subtle or acoustic i want it to sound tough you know i mean not not heavy metal but you know sort of it, it had to have weight to it and authority so for the first time i I went actually went out to buy an electric guitar in order to make the demos. Although but you I know, do I have, have a... some electric guitars, but but the one that I bought was a because I was sitting at my office desk to record the demos. It 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 wanted to be as small as possible. It didn't want to be sticking out too far and banging into things. So I I bought a headless uh, uh, guitar, uh, uh, whatever it's called, a Steinberg, Steinberg. electric guitar. I wanted to ask you about that. Do you not still have the the Hamer? That was made for. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do have some guitars floating around somewhere in, locked up in a room, but with some of the redundant instruments. But it's not something I'm drawn to play. And I right. certainly, I mean, there would be guitars that have been, the cases haven't been open for thirty years or more. So, right, they would probably be, um, suffering from. Well, they would require quite a bit of setting up probably to get them. Assuming the necks were not damaged or bent, that you know they would have to be. I'd have to expend a bit of time and effort, whereas buying a new one out of the box and <laughs> plugging it in was an easy option. Yeah, and as I say, a much smaller guitar, which is a physically really was important, is important to me if I'm 
playing a guitar with in in a in a tight physical space so when i'm working alone i'm working with a computer and i have things around me i don't want to bang into just on the new the box sets the 5.1 surround sound box sets are absolutely stunning i've got all of them and i'm eagerly awaiting the the broadsword one so do you have any word on when the broadsword one will come out and also on the under wraps one do you have any news about that and maybe getting a real drummer as you sometimes suggested i sometimes do and um you know i've had i've had that discussion with other people but um only mentioned it i think once to warner music who have the the recorded copyright in the original recording so um you know, they would have to want to do it and to want to do it they would have to see a commercially viable reason to do it and i don't think that that they do i'm assuming that they don't and um so i mean that is not on the cards it's certainly not something i would want to do i personally do i mean, i i think it's a great some great songs i really love the album from the point of view of the songwriting and the playing of everybody all of which was live in the studio no no trickery it's all mm -hmm. played live and except to a drum machine which was um which was um programmed roughly and then refined at the time of finishing the album and mixing it but you know that that was the that was the that was the thing about that particular era was experimenting with what was new technology which was um essentially simple computerized drum machines with uh, samplers sequencers and um and devices that could record memorize and be linked up with midi that would play passages of music sequencers they were called um and that was the new technology in 1982 83 when it began and so it seemed like it was something not to turn my back on but to see whether it would be a useful addition in the armory of tools to make records and you know, I, I tried to try to utilize it for what it was, and I don't regret doing it. But by you know a couple of years later, I think I'd come round to the idea that the old-fashioned way was still the better way. That we, um, you know, we had a real drummer, and the real drummer would play, and we would play along with the real drummer in rehearsals and recording, which is mm. what we do today, and what we did prior to um, prior to um, the uh, well, actually prior to the solo album, Walk Into Light, which was. Walk into light, followed by under wraps, were the two albums where I mm -hmm. pursued that route. Um, but uh, you know that that that's that's that one. So that, no no news there. Although I've okay. had one perfectly capable drummer saying he'd be very happy to do it, um, and maybe that's one day might be on the cards. But Warner Music, as I say, they they have mm -hmm. the copyright. Yeah. They they own the master tapes, the multi tracks. They would have to want to do it. They'd have to want to um undertake the the time and effort and cost of of uh re-recording and remixing which would be many thousands of pounds and mm -hmm. they probably just don't see that it's worth it for the particularly in a market of declining physical sales yeah and so uh that's that one as to the question about broadsword broadsword is long overdue and i still have not had in spite of several ask asking times asking the the, the uh, warner music what was the reason for the delay it seems that somebody cocked up the manufacturing schedules and forgot to book in uh, broadsword for 
um, for uh, pressing and manufacturing in vinyl. Right. And so it missed a year because, of course, there's a narrow window of opportunity when you have other product coming out. You know, I wouldn't want them re-releasing, you know, a, a broadsword box set the same month as I'm releasing a new album. Yeah. And so I've, yeah. I've always given them, you know, said, okay, well, if you want to do it, it has to be between this month and that month. You know, don't do it later because I have another project that's nothing to do with you guys, which uh, I don't want it to interfere with and, um, and vice versa. So um, the next window of opportunity, I believe, is July of this year. But, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. They've invested a lot of time and money in, a, in an enormous box set with probably the greatest number of unreleased and relatively unknown um, material, which in many cases is supported by demos and initial recordings and so on. So it is a, a classic box set filled with all the the detail and bits and bobs and a, a big booklet and lots of um, input from a number of other people, not just me. So it um, and and uh, remixed and mastered by Stephen Wilson. So it's a it's a big project that's already cost them a lot of time and money. Uh, it'd be very foolish to have it delayed yet again. So let's uh, fingers crossed that it will indeed be July this year. In which case, I'm a little bit surprised that they're not already saying to me. Um, Right, we better work out a promo schedule to, uh, yeah. you know, to um, publicize, you know, the release date of the album, publicize it, and then ask me to do press and promo, as which takes up so much of my life. And mm -hmm. as you can imagine, I hold in almost as much disdain as I do doing meet and greets <laughs> after concerts. Yeah, just, yeah we're sorry. That's <laughs> all right. It's all right. Someone's got to do it. It always has to be me, see, because right from the early days of Jethro Tell, yeah. journalists mostly didn't want to talk to the other guys. You know, they talked to John Evans when he first joined the band, and they talked a bit to Martin Barr here and there, but he was never, you know, he didn't really enjoy doing interviews, felt like he was the the second choice, and I suppose he, you know, he wasn't particularly, um, didn't find it that easy to communicate or be um the life and soul in terms of an interview so it always ended up you know if i mean i if i didn't do it all i did 99 percent of the press and promo mm -hmm. and, and um that was uh, a, a big chore to always have to deal with in terms of of uh promoting tours and concerts yeah, it's the curse of the front man isn't it really yes it's the curse of uh of solo artists too who don't have anyone to turn to for support and that yep. i suppose quite often unless they have a special relationship with managers or other musicians you know it must be quite a lonely life especially at the top um yeah. so well, uh i mean at least i've always been part of a band uh yeah. i mean it's been a few solo albums but i've been working with others and and um i don't really feel that much pressure in working in that way because a lot of what i do i am working alone anyway and i mm. don't find it easy to work in the creative process with other people you know I've, I've never never wanted to write songs with anybody else or sometimes being asked to write lyrics for other people and i said look you know this is your song you know you write it I, I i'm not coming in halfway through to try and put some words to some music that perhaps is i'm not that keen on it anyway so <laughs> I, yeah, and the idea of co-writing something 
you know, it's just, it's like getting into the shower with somebody, you know, you're not <laughs> going to wash, you don't really want to wash your balls next to somebody that's, unless it's an incredibly intimate relationship. So I'm <laughs> not, not something I'm going to, going to want to do to, you know, so, step into that metaphorical shower in terms of uh, bearing my soul and my connection to another person. I can imagine this being on the, the request for, for, a, for a songwriting credit then for you is like, if you're prepared to go and wash your balls next to me in the shower, <laughs> then we can write a song together. But otherwise... Well, that's not quite not. what I said. I, said, I wasn't prepared <laughs> to wash my balls. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Cool. Yeah, fair enough. I'm totally disinterested in anybody else washing <laughs> their balls in close proximity. So. And just there on the go. promotion side, Ian, you caused a bit of a storm on Blabbermouth, etc., by mentioning Motley Crue and Motorhead's umlauts. But that came on top of... Uh, Motley Crue in particular are getting a hard time just now for using backing tapes instead of playing completely live. Mm. I've seen you a couple of times and both well, times. I'm yeah, I I'm I am mocking. I mean, I, I was you know a bit of a fan of Motorhead. Yeah. But yeah. looking back on it, you know, Lemmy's fascination for um World War One and World War Two, of which he was an amateur historian and and I think took it all very seriously. But he was fascinated by the dark side of the of the Nazi era. There's, there's absolutely no mistaking that. And there's nothing wrong with not nothing wrong with having an interest in history and trying to rationalize it, know about it, understand it. Nothing wrong with that at all, as long as you don't start dressing up in a way that makes it look like you are somehow supportive of of some dark elements in history and the and the the spurious use of the the umlaut i can only imagine is a fascination for something that is necessarily a dark thing i mean goodness me the umlaut is a part of, of spelling and i mean it, it's not only the german people it it's it appears in in you know in the, well in icelandic for example so it's um it may there may be a connection but it's not a I think making a bit of a joke about it is, um, you know, in terms of naming your band and, and including an umlaut just because it makes it look like you're a tough guy, which I think is the only explanation for, you know, that in the case of those two bands. Then, uh, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, at the very, at the very least, it's a bit silly, you know, it's a bit silly, as you know, silly yeah. in the way that Monty Python would have said silly. And and I think yeah. I think that's in in actual fact what it's about. And um, so uh, it's if, if you're going to use it, for God's sake, use it correctly and properly in 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 the language that you're speaking. Rook, you know, old yeah, Icelandic yeah. word meaning destiny, and flirter being the German pronunciation and spelling of of the instrument I play. Utterly correct. And I, I chose to do it knowing that it was going to be potentially. Not courting disaster, but courting a bit of comparison, which is why I readily point out that you know other folk who've done it have been a bit silly. How do you feel about their apparent use of tapes on stage? Would you ever go down that route, or do you have any? Oh yeah, we we went down we went down the route of using special effects. I mean, I had a in the days when this was a tape, it was literally a quarter inch tape running off a Revox at the front of mm. our desk. And controlled by a, a, a switch on stage at my feet, and I would press the button, and there would be a whip crack several times during the song "Hunting Girl." Yeah, and there would be, um, and there were some uh, harmonies to my own voice, harmonies mm -hmm. I sang in a couple of places, where um, again I would trigger the tape, and we would play along with, which you can do if it's only a few seconds, but 
you know, you can't do it when it involves a lot more stuff in terms of a prolonged piece of music, especially when it's linked to video and you're actually having to work one way or another. You're having to work to to a click track in order to stay in sync with the video, mm -hmm. which clearly can't stay in sync with you. So I, I'm, you know, I think discreetly you can do these things, but the idea of having, uh, you know, a, 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 an entire musical performance uh, on tape and inverted commas, although of course it won't be magnetic recording tape in this yeah. day and age. It will be a, it will be an audio file in in the digital world. It's something that I had to consider and had to actually um, uh, actually bring into play uh, on three occasions when members of the band and and or the crew had got COVID. And I, I had taken the, the my son's suggestion at the back end of 2021. We we took the initiative of recording um, two or three shows and having uh, all the musicians apart from me having their parts uh, recorded and embedded in um, in the video tracks as audio in the event that somebody you know got sick while we were on tour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or immediately before and that is exactly what happened in uh, on three occasions once when uh, our guitar player got covid just before we were due to go to israel to play um and i um said to the promoters a couple you know the day before we i said look we, there's two choices here either we don't come or we come but we have to use what i called the covid tapes which was it'll be the guitar player you will hear him you won't see him and and if we do that, we really have to be honest to the audience and say what it is we're doing. And so it's your choice. You're the promoter. You're the guys who are <clears throat> going to lose a ton of money if we don't show up, or you have to reschedule. And quite frankly, I can't tell you when we can reschedule because we don't mm -hmm. have, you know, vacant slots in the in the year planner. You know, in the um, in the schedules of dates coming up to combine with, with which the the availability of the venues. It just, you know, it, well, we might be doing what we did in 2019, waiting two years before we could finally reschedule a concert. So um, these things are quite, um, quite tricky and sensitive. But uh, our, our drummer Scott got COVID um, again the day before we were due to go to Poland, and so we had to do a, do three concerts in Poland with no drummer. Although my my son actually flew out with us to play the drums mm. live. And he hadn't played for eight years or something, but you know he'd learnt the set in forty-eight hours and was got on the plane to come and play drums live in Poland in some difficult music. But yeah. when he got there, our lighting director also tested positive for COVID, and and so my son ended up then having to to do the lights, while um, we then had to use the the drum recording to replace the drummer's performance. So um, there have been those occasions and they're very embarrassing and it is just a lesser of evils, you know, and I said to the promoter, it's your choice. I'm not making the choice, your choice. If you want us to do it, you know, we will do it re very reluctantly, but we will do it um, and we have to explain to the audience what's going on. So right. um, well, it's it's something that I think there are occasions when... You know, you know, you're going to get some people whinging and moaning, and you know, demanding their money back or using it as an, an excuse to criticise. But equally, if we just cancel the concert at 24 hours' notice, 
and says, we're not playing. And people have paid all their money. And in some cases, these are concerts that have been rescheduled from previous mm, yeah. um, previous uh, attempts that have been already cancelled and or not cancelled, but rescheduled once or twice during the COVID uh, period of uh, lockdowns. So a very difficult situation. I don't think... Uh, I don't think there are clear-cut rights and wrongs or, or whatever, but you know, ultimately, when you're using anything that is sort of supportive in audio terms, I think it's got to be very subtle, and and it only applies in the, in the situation when you can do it in a production show. If it's a, a couple of nights ago, I was playing in a festival in the north of England, and you know, that's just walking on the stage, just just playing playing what what we do. You know, we just um, just go for it what we want yeah so so you talk about um you, you talked a bit about before about drum machines and the early adoption of technology and stuff and sort of following on from the, the talk now about tapes or pre-recorded stuff have you heard any of the or what do you think about the new sort of ai generated music stuff that's appearing now and you're getting i don't know john lennon singing songs that that he never sang and things like that because they're using ai to generate Stuff well, I saw exist. I saw in the Guardian, I think it was yesterday or the day before, a picture, a big sort of glossy, colourful picture of uh, King Charles covered in eggs and things that have been thrown at him, and, and he's in his coronation outfit, you know, the king, and he's covered in mm. eggs. And I thought, what? You know, that's that that's not happened. Yeah. And, and of course, it was a mock-up shot, and the Guardian didn't 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 put a put a put a caption underneath saying this was a you know a, a computerized or a photoshopped image or or an ai image or, or anything they ran it like it was a real story mm. and i think that's an appalling thing to do i think it's yeah. appallingly insulting a to the king of our country it would be appallingly insulting if it was you or me uh and so i think that utterly 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 unscrupulous utterly utterly immoral to run yeah. that in a any public forum i mean you could imagine it being on you know facebook or some social media but in the guardian the bastion of all that is good and correct and <laughs> i mean what a terrible thing to do what shits those editors are to let that go through i don't think it's funny i think yep. it's appallingly rude and immoral to do that under the guise of journalism it's a dreadful thing to do. so you know my view about people um trying to capitalize on something it's um it's it's the digitized version of being in a tribute band you know if you want to make your make your living out of pretending to be something you're not then that's your choice you, you know maybe you're john gilgood maybe you're Lawrence olivier maybe you're maybe you're my son-in-law and that's your profession as an actor is to pretend to be somebody you're not but i think we accept it in that context of storytelling to try and to try and make it pass muster to the gullible who may well believe it's for real i think is a terrible thing to do i i was in i'd taken myself off to wander around windsor which I'd never visited. I wanted to go to see Windsor Castle, and I and I, I went there a few weeks ago. And when I was walking through the streets of Windsor, I saw on a small theatre in Windsor a poster outside saying Eric Clapton. I thought, what? Eric Clapton playing? You know, there's probably only sort of five, six hundred people in here. And then I thought, oh, maybe doesn't he live somewhere in this part of the world? You know, somewhere in Surrey or somewhere. You know, maybe it's a charity concert. Maybe he's supporting the theatre or something. And it really is a, 
you know, fundraiser or something that he's doing. And um, and that's all he said, Eric Clapton. And then I I, uh, I walked over to the poster and, and looked down. And right at the bottom, in very, very small letters, it said, um, you know, the music of, uh, of Eric Clapton performed by Eric and the Claptons. Now, what miserable creature decides to try and make a living out of doing that? I mean, it's the, the endless, the endless tribute bands to Queen and Meatloaf and God knows whoever, probably Motley Crue. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I can understand in a light-hearted way that it's it's sort of entertainment for people, but I think it depends on who you're talking about. There being a tribute band to uh, ABBA or something is sort of, you know, it's a lightweight sort of humorous dressing up silliness. But when it's something of musical importance, like Pink Floyd, the endless tribute bands that go out, in most cases making it kind of obvious they are a tribute band. But I I find that that a lot of the venues I'm playing at, when you look at it and you realise that 80% of the the artists who walk through the door are actually tribute bands, not not the real thing, not anybody with anything original to say. They are masquerading as uh, dressing dressing up to look like and sound like somebody else. And yeah, you know, I, I know there's lots of arguments, and I can understand them uh, to say, well, we can't get you know the Queen don't exist anymore, at least not mm-hmm. with Freddie Mercury. So we got the chance to go and see somebody strutting their stuff who looks a bit like Freddie Mercury, and then. Um, you know, we'd rather have that than nothing at all. But yeah. you know, there's endless amounts of of uh, of uh, legitimate television programs, um, documentary programs, and and illegal YouTube examples of of all mm. these people. If you actually want to see the real thing, um, so I, I, I'm 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 not very keen on on tribute bands. I think they're you know they're, they're just something I to, to me you, you've got to be pretty low. In in the, in the in the world to want to make your living in in such a such a way where that that seems to be your prime occupation is just to be yeah imitating I, something e- even if you genuinely love the the original band and this is just this wonderful opportunity to dress up it's 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 a bit like being Captain Hook in Peter Pan you know uh, and and wearing a false hook you know I mean how how far are you prepared to go are you prepared to have your hand chopped off in order to be a, a realistic, uh, um, a realistic Captain Hook, um, or if you're in a tribute band, are you prepared to, you know, if you're in a Black Sabbath tribute band, are you prepared to lose the ends off a couple of fingers in order to force you to play like Tony Iommi? You know, how far are you prepared to go for your art? But it's it's an interesting one, right? Because I mean, many bands, if not all bands, I don't know, um, play covers of other of other bands that have come before them. So is it the dressing up? Because I've, I've often had the same thought, because I used to, both Stephen and I have performed in bands, obviously not at the level that you, you do. And uh, we did loads of covers, um, you know, doing like mm. pub gigs and stuff, but we didn't dress up as the you know yeah. one band and do the tribute thing. And um, Well, yes, and you, and, you always... have the, and you have the option then to, to make those songs, at least for a, five minutes on stage to make them your own by changing the arrangement yeah. or doing them in, in the way you want to do it, change the key, change the tempo, uh, do something that 
that makes it a little bit more personal and a bit more of a creative input. But you can't do that if you're a tribute band. You've got to play it exactly as it was on yeah, the record. True. It's going yeah. to be believable. And therefore, there is there is nothing other than simply replicating uh, uh, something that somebody did. And when it comes to dressing up and looking like, well, then, you know, at that point, I think you, you, you are purely in that... Um, you know, just just taking money for for being a musical yeah. hooker, frankly. I mean, I, I know it's an uncompromising attitude to take, but I really just don't feel I don't I don't feel good in any way about tribute bands. I, I just really don't feel comfortable about it. But but doing your version of somebody else's song is an accolade, and no right. one should feel bad that somebody does their song. As long as you acknowledge that it is their song, yeah, and then you get into that difficult situation where you have intentionally or accidentally plagiarized somebody else's music and pretended that it is your own. Um, obviously, the case in point at the moment being, not for the first time, Ed Sheeran. Oh, and yeah. um, th those are difficult situations because, of course, we all hear so much music in our lives that when we're young and we subconsciously pick up on lots of things. They're embedded somewhere in the back of your brain. You come to write a song. It's all too easy to you know, to pick a sequence of notes or a line of lyrics that you think, oh, that sounds good. And you forget that that's something you heard 10 years ago. Yeah. So uh, it's easy to understand it. I can remember back in the 70s having to constantly write to the Performing Rights Society to check the registration of song titles to try and avoid, you know, giving a song a title that, that was unknown yeah. to me, yeah. but but was already been used several times. And and so I remember, and that nice to take, weeks to get a result during which time you were fearful of of committing a um a song title to album artwork because you hadn't heard back from prs yet as to whether it was one that had been used already and it might be that it was used already by but by somebody no one's ever heard of mm -hmm. but just happened right. to be registered yeah. with prs so these days it's a whole lot easier and of course i research album titles song titles i i go through everything from uh, well, all the social media, obviously, and then, um, you know, uh, Apple Music and um, and uh, and just do Google searches uh, mm -hmm. for previous usages of those of those song titles or album titles. And quite often my first or second choice has, has already clearly been used, even if I haven't heard of the artist in question doesn't mean uh, that many other people may know who that artist is. So um, I just try to stay clear of it. But it's pretty easy to do now. It's a matter of two or three minutes to research a song title and yeah. say, no, nope, mm -hmm. that's in the clear. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I was doing this Elliot Gene, for example, I thought, you know, fingers crossed between finishing the album and the song and everything that no one decides to come up with a that, that particular set of... Uh, Three words, the zealot gene. You know, it's uh, it's not yeah. not too out there. It's something that's uh, quite easily somebody might stumble upon, just like John Lennon stumbled upon the artwork for an album cover um, for a solo album in 1972, which was the New York Times. Unfortunately, uh, a week or two after Thick as a Brick had been released. Mm. Uh, pure coincidence. I'm yeah. absolutely sure he wouldn't have wanted to do that had he known that Thick as a Brick featured a 16-page yeah, spoof yeah. newspaper in the middle. You know, then it made his album look decidedly uh, pedestrian and um, 
you know, but it's too late to pull, you know, I mean, um, even if the record company or he had wanted to change, it was too late to do anything about it because mm -hmm. they'd already had the albums pressed up, the release date, everything was, the machinery had rolled. And so these things yeah. can happen. Some other guy, I think in um, America, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but um, sort of solo guy, but with a regular band who came out with an album called, or was it a track called Stand Up? And um, and it, I mean, this is quite a few years ago. You would have thought somebody would have sort of, hang on a minute, that was a Jethro Tull album in 1969 and did do quite well. You know, it's a it's actually a platinum album, even if you haven't heard of it. But <laughs> it, um, you know, you would think that people would 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 not want to use something that had been used before. Yeah, and yet I'm constantly it's unbelievable that people will just i'm going to set up my own company and i'm going to call it such and such and 30 seconds will show you that there's a whole bunch of other companies registered under that name mm -hmm. in different different countries of the world you know they're in the uk registered with companies house it doesn't take any time to realize that somebody else has done it and and therefore you say well hang on a minute hang on that's been done before and and but it somehow people have made the decision and they refuse they just refuse to acknowledge the fact that this is a bad idea you know this makes me look like i'm copycat you know it makes me look like i'm unoriginal it makes me look ultimately stupid and potentially the subject of uh, legal action yeah. it's a dumb yeah. thing to do and yet people just get you know oh i thought of it therefore it must be okay and they do that with songs and song lyrics and and so on it's it's just all too easy to let it happen so if you're a songwriter you have got you you owe it to yourself let alone to other people to be on your guard and do a bit of research you know so my my simple word to any songwriter um would be would be a four-letter piece of advice write it research it if you don't do that you you could well get into trouble yeah so, it, well, I mean, we, we must be yeah, we're slightly on, over uh, time, Ian. So thanks very much. Do we have time for one more? Or? Yes, very quickly. Oh, goodness me, that's the time. Yes, quickly, yeah. But, okay, just on, I suddenly developed asthma a few years ago, and I, mm. the wheezing can be quite bad. So we know that you have something similar or whatever. But does playing the flute help you clear your lungs? Well, I well, happily, I am an asthmatic. Mm -hmm. I am not suffering they say, from COPD, which was the original yeah. uh, diagnosis about five years ago, um, I think 2017, maybe it was. Yeah, it's quite a big story. And then um, I, I went back for more tests in 2021, and another uh, specialist said, no, I don't think it's COPD, said, um, I think it's asthma. Um, and um, and that is treatable, not curable, but it is treatable, whereas COPD is a slippery slope to, well, death. Right. Sometimes, you know, it takes many years, but it will get you in the end. And um, in my case, I'm very happy to believe that it's asthma and that, in fact, I probably had it for many years without knowing because I used to just suffer from interminable colds and flu um, you know, it didn't clear up. If I got something, it would be weeks yeah. of coughing and, you know, just um, really, really suffering and making it very, very difficult on stage. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And I, that, you know, I can recall that in, in my 20s, you know, if ever, if ever I got a cold, it was just so much worse than everybody else. It would eventually kind of clear up, but maybe six weeks later. And, um, and so in reality, I think having got that much older, the, the situation is that I'd now take regularly um, the, the, the medical intervention for asthma, which is to use an inhaler. Yeah. Well, two inhalers and um and that definitely has helped you know i mean definitely definitely has helped for a while i resisted the brown inhaler because it um is one that i felt you know, uncomfortable about because you're supposed to use it every day mm-hmm. as a preventative measure yeah so i felt uncomfortable about that so i would just use the blue inhaler as a an immediate aid before i go on stage but I decided uh, a year ago that I should really use the brown inhaler. So I take actually half the minimum dose every day, uh, which mm-hmm. seems to work for me. Yeah. It shouldn't do because it has, a, like most medications, has a, its effect only lasts for a few hours. But I, I, I choose my time. I usually use the brown inhaler in the afternoon um, and um, just for one, one squirt and a very deep, long inhalation followed by a mouthwash, followed by um, the blue inhaler before I go on stage. And I do I do what my uh, both of the specialists told me I should do. You know, don't don't pack up and go fishing, play golf or do something. You know, you, you've got to tackle this head on. You really do need to work your lungs. You really do need to push yourself. And, and um, so being a flute player and doing what I do on stage or being a singer – then all of that is two two hours of aerobics every night, and it's um it is demanding because I have to really remind yeah. myself to, to you know to constantly remind myself to breathe and and um, my mm-hmm. my lung capacity whilst it's probably average for my age it's not what it was when I was in my twenties, so I do have to breathe more often, and as a flute player I am right on the edge of uh, being able to play the long passages without a breath that I have played in certain songs for many, many years. But I know that it's a bit tougher now. I have to really remind myself really to fill my lungs before I yeah, play yes. a long passage uh-huh. without breathing. And so it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that things are more difficult. But having said all of that, it's um, compared to how I was five or six years ago, I'm, I'm definitely feeling um, better doing a performance than than I was back then and and so far um since 2000 and well since 2017 I've only I've not had a, a viral infection a cold or flu or thank goodness not covid either um I have had a bad asthmatic spell in 2021 which lasted for a couple of weeks and mm-hmm. prompted me to to then go and have further diagnosis, as I described. Mm-hmm. But uh, I haven't had a viral infection, and that's probably because I'm a mixture of super careful and super lucky. But normally, if I'm doing a face to face interview on Zoom or whatever, I wear a face mask. You know, I'm I'm very cautious. <laughs> In fact, how many face masks do I have here in front of me? <laughs> Four, because I. Oh. I tend to recycle my FFP2 masks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not wear the same one more than a, a day or so, but um, I, I, I still wear a face mask because I have. I mean, I first first had 
face masks in my hand luggage. 20 something years ago i bought bought a face mask i think in i think it might have been in tokyo yeah i was gonna say yeah. in japan and yeah. then subsequently in dubai airport i remember buying a couple of face masks because i was nervous about long long haul flying and, and not wanting mm. to get bugs and back then you know the face masks i bought were useless they were just you might as well throw them away yeah. they, 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 they might help stop the effects of uh, heavy droplet transmission if you were coughing or sneezing at somebody else. They're not going to stop you uh, picking up a viral form of infection. But um, an FFP2 or an FFP3 mask definitely gives you protection as long as you wear it properly, you know, tight-fitting. Mm. <laughs> and, it's of course, it's difficult to breathe. But having said all of that, it's probably good training for me to actually breathe through a face mask for eight hours because it forces me to use my lungs a bit more. And... Um, I remember I remember when I first started wearing a mask in the early months of 2020 and I bought some FFP3 masks at a time when they they were very difficult to get hold of and subsequently took myself off to walk around the, the fields and the woods briskly to see if I could cope with wearing it and it was so claustrophobic it was mm. so itchy it was so Im impeding to try and breathe through and I was so dizzy I almost fell over a couple of times you know and I and I had to practice. I, I then started going out and about and walking around cities wearing my face mask during the height of COVID um, to, in, in order to get better at it. And mm -hmm. um, I, I still, it still itches like hell. It's still incredibly claustrophobic. It's still you know, an awful thing to have to do. But I do feel I have to do it because if I get sick, there is no COVID tape. If I get sick, yeah. it's a cancellation. If I get sick... Promoter loses a ton of money. People get very pissed off because there is no way under the sun. If I don't get on a plane on Wednesday to go to Reykjavik, that concert will not be rescheduled for at least a year, if not more, in the one and only big concert hall in, in Iceland. So, um, you know, I really don't want to get COVID. I don't want to get a cold, let alone anything else. I'm really, really careful, and I'm really careful. It's not about me. Sometimes I almost... I almost wish I could wear that badge of honor, which is to say I, I had COVID and lived. You know, I, I, I don't have that badge of honor. Sometimes I think, you know, I rather would have liked to have got COVID to see whether I would have survived it even pre-vaccination. But um on balance, you know, that the 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 putting the bad putting putting the band and the crew out of work is one thing. Putting a promoter perhaps into bankruptcy is another thing, and pushing um, pushing uh, audiences yet again to have to accept cancellations and and rescheduling is uh, something I will do everything in my power to avoid. And so I, if you see the one and only guy on a British Airways flight wearing a mask, it will be me. And if there are any more of them oh. on that flight, it'll be the members of the band and crew who have. We'll make sure we'll make sure we go over and ask you for an autograph then. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you'll love that. And, yeah, say, and, I get, and I get people say, Can I have a selfie? And I <laughs> or make it quick, just one. And they say, Can you take off your mask? And I said, No, and don't touch me either. <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm afraid I'm some things I'm, you know, just it's in here. I'm not gonna I mean, if it's outdoors, I mean, I don't wear a mask walking around outdoors unless I get Im embedded in a, a tight crowd of people, yeah, you know, yeah. then then I put my mask on. I mean, it's always hanging off one ear anyway, so I, I, I wear it, but I wear it, you know, most of the time going through airports or in a supermarket or anywhere else where I, I'm, there may be a few metres between me and another person in a ventilated space, fine, 
but in reality there are always roadblocks along the way where you're yeah. stuck in a crowd of people usually going ah, 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 at each other or elevators in hotels yeah. you know oh, yeah. the japanese get in an elevator they do not talk they stand quietly because they know whether yeah. they're wearing a mask or not that an elevator is a place where if you're going bah, 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 at somebody next to you if you do have a cold you're going to spread it to other people and so they're conscious of that fact or at least you know in, in my experience of Japan, they are maybe the yeah. culture has changed a bit in more recent years. But you know, I think there are things that are just common sense. You know, to try and avoid um, passing on bugs to people, because you know, if you get—I don't know what you do for a living—but I'm going to assume, rightly or wrongly, that if you get sick, you call in and say, "You know what? I think I've got COVID or I've got flu. Or I'm not coming into work today." Um, and and you know, it's it's not the end of the world. And People have done that, obviously, since the beginning. I, I remember being at school and, and my mother, you know, calling and saying, oh, he's, he's, he's got a, you know, he's got flu or he's got a bad cold or tummy ache or something. He won't be at school today or tomorrow. And and I can only remember as a child hating this fact that I was missing a day's school because it was embarrassing. I knew that I was going to be going back into class and everybody was a day or two days ahead of me in something difficult like algebra or quadratic equations or something. You don't want to miss a lesson. You know, it's really hard to catch up on things you've missed. So I, I, I hated being off school to be sick and I hate being off school in the, in the sense of missing a day of what I do today. You know, it's a, um, something I really, really don't like doing. I think the total cancellations. I may. Well, then I, th I think I'm still. I'm still in 55 years of being a professional musician. It's less than the fingers of two hands. I can remember a time a few years ago, and it was less than the fingers of one hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying cancellation. I'm not saying cancellation due to my own illness. I'm just saying cancellations. Yeah, yeah. Full stop. Be obviously, COVID had a, an imp uh, 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 its influence on that, but um, not. Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a pretty good record that in fifty five years, I think less than ten concerts have been cancelled. Um, but they are ten too many. You know, people yeah. will have got very upset that you didn't you didn't show yeah. up for work. You know, yeah. understandably. Anyway, uh, was that the last question, or is there another it's one? We, no, that's well. We, we, well. <laughs> we can ask you more if you want. But, we can um, ask you all day if you like. I'll, no, I'll, I'll just tell you what. One, and I will promise I'll I will make it a very very short answer. Okay, then I'll tell you what. I'm going to ask you about. I, I I was really amazed to hear how quickly I heard in another interview you gave how quickly you wrote um, Rook Flutter, um, and that like from the, from conception to, to yeah. finishing it, you you. you the demos or whatever you know the actual writing of it mm. was quite quick and you said that you start each album on the first of january so my question really was did you start an album this first of january and if so how far along are you in the process of writing it well the the, the answer is yes and from a standing start and and i only did a couple of days work to kind of get the the main ideas down on paper and mm -hmm. um and uh and then rather deliberately, deliberately because of the subject matter, which needs a lot of research, and it also needs a more personal touch that I, I think, I think I need more time before I go to the next stage of, of music and lyrics. Um, but I do have a deadline, and that deadline is to complete 
the writing by the end of this calendar year and to record in January and February to deliver in April for an October release. So that mm -hmm. is all written in stone and, um, you know, fingers crossed, nothing will, nothing will step up to make that difficult. But because of the subject material, I'm not quite ready to go further with it yet. I, I mean, I think about it quite often. Yeah. I, I just don't want to make that mistake of putting something down there and then having to throw it away later. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I know what the album is about. I know what the subject material is. I have the shape of it, but it's a, a, a much more... It will have a degree of intimacy that the last two albums don't have. Any um, any it, clue as to it, what it's about? It will still be a band album, but so I could tell you exactly what it's intended to be about. But of course, I'm not going to do that because <laughs> no, I know <laughs> every, everything. Everything might go pear shaped, and I end up, you know, um, you know, writing an album of love songs or an album about um, um, LGBT. Um, experiences or something I, who knows oh, I've, we've sown the seeds of that in this podcast well yeah it's all your fault so. <laughs> well thanks so much ian for your time yeah, well, the, the, the only pleasure. important thing is that uh, the end of that experience hopefully by was to go down that route and write that album that um um i suppose on the upside i wouldn't have to then i wouldn't have to wash my balls in the shower would i because i wouldn't have any you wouldn't have to promote the album either because it'd be all over the news <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would, um, but no, it wouldn't because no one, no one got. I, I don't, I certainly don't rate that kind of level of, of um, <laughs> scrutiny when it comes to uh, personal stuff. Anyway, I, I'm not the first person to say. I think there comes a point in your life when you're sort of almost off the hook because you're a cranky old guy and you can get away with saying stuff that that would really upset people if you were in your twenties or thirties, and mm -hmm. and so. You know, if um, you know people who people who want to say things or discuss topics that are a bit more um, a bit more controversial and where there is the danger of being misunderstood or taken out of context, there's a point when you get old enough and you get cranky enough that you may not be instantly forgiven, but you kind of get away with it. I mean, Roger Waters, unbelievably, he's he's got away with it. I think his his German concerts, uh, they they gave the they gave the go ahead for it to happen, although the local um, entity are appealing against the decision. But you know, I didn't I didn't think he'd get away with it. I thought he'd gone a step too far. And um, and Morrissey, you know, Morrissey, <laughs> bless him, you know, he's 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 you know pontificated on a few things. And and having read the original quotes and read his explanations and his, you know, I I, I and it's it's going to happen to him every time he opens his mouth, which is perhaps one of the reasons that he doesn't seem to be opening his mouth quite so often as he used to do. And and Morrissey, I'm absolutely happy to forgive because I'm I'm a huge Morrissey fan as of about six weeks ago, and um, when I've discovered Morrissey's music and lyrics, and I. I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm ready to forgive Morrissey almost everything because he's a cranky old guy, but younger than me, but he's still pretty cranky, and and um, you know that's uh, that's okay. So I, I like to think maybe I'm just in that category where it's not worth cancelling me because in most people's minds I'm cancelled anyway because I'm too old to be relevant, and uh, what I do is too, you know, too often the the peripheral. Uh, 
side of the uh, of the of, of pop and rock music. So I mean, I'm I'm happy to be irrelevant to the to the public at large. That suits me just fine. Never Thank never you. too old to yeah. rock and roll if you're too old to be cancelled or you know, something well, like that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, good. Nice to talk to you. And uh, thanks, uh, Ian. Uh, Thank uh, you so much. Best Ian. of luck. Yeah. Now, now you take the t-shirt on and put the Queen one back on again. Have you the, seen the picture uh, in the background? <laughs> I've, I've actually got a massive picture of you in my wall. Oh, that right, I've hand yeah. drawn. Yes, I've seen that one before. Yeah. It's no, it's it's no, it's no joke, um, Ian. That Jethro Tull is Stephen's favorite band. All oh, right, where, 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 where is whereas you just borrowed a couple of albums <laughs> to, to, to stick on to stick on the bookshelf behind. These it. are the only two that I've got. Uh, I gave actually, them. This is a, this is a Spanish reprint. I was living in Spain when I bought. Oh this well, one, there so you this go. Hasn't even got the, So they are really my albums. Well, okay, dokie. All right, <laughs> thanks, Ian. Okay, take care. Thank Bye-bye you so now. much, Ian. Bye. Cheers. Bye. That's it for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have enjoyed it, please take a moment to leave a review or whatever platform you're listening on. And don't forget to subscribe. Let us know if you have any questions or things you would like us to cover in future episodes. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash rock, paper, swords podcast and Twitter at rock underscore swords. You can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time, a rock, paper, swords. It's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. Mackay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind. Stay safe. And happy reading.